Well, our text again this week will be grounded in and based upon Genesis 17. So if you would open there, and I will read verses 1 through 9 to refresh us on, on the themes herein. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, the word of the Lord. And again, our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for how glorious your covenant promises are for us, your people, the, the seed of Abraham, the, the true seed, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us today see how gloriously these promises made to Abraham and inform the life to come and inform what the gospel will accomplish ultimately. Help us see it. Help us marvel. And may our affections for the Lord Jesus burn even brighter in light of it. In Christ's name we pray. And amen. Well, there, there are certain books or blogs that you come upon and, and they, they are helpful because they give you an insight that help you understand something better. Perhaps it's a marriage book or a finance book or a parenting book. It gives you a, a pro tip, as it were, and, and that's helpful. I can apply that to, to that thing. And, but then there are those rare books that it could be said, not so much that they help you see something clearer, but they help you see everything clearer. That is, they don't so much give you a new insight as they give you a new lens that now enhances everything you see. And I have a few books in the lens category, and one of them that helped me understand the, the very nature of our ultimate redemption clearer is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. In The Great Divorce, you, you follow a man who has a dream that he makes a journey from hell to heaven, or, or the high country, as Lewis calls it. And as the reader, you're, you're following his experience in, in this high country. And here is the biblical truth, the invaluable lens that this impressed upon me. Namely, as Christians, 
the trajectory of our redemption, the, the trajectory of our eternal existence is not heading from a physical world ultimately to a cloudy, nebulous, ethereal world somewhere far away. It is, it is not doing that, or to say it another way, ultimate redemption will not be a transition from a world of substance that you can touch and hold and hammer and, and smell to a world of mist that has lost its tactile reality. In fact, it is the exact opposite. Namely, the final state, the, the new heavens and the new earth, is actually far more solid and far more real and far more glorious, which means weighty, than the world we are currently in. That is, our, our sinful states perhaps actually make us more shadowy than the true substance that awaits us in glory. This is from The Great Divorce. He says, A grove of huge cedars to my right seemed attractive, and I entered it, but walking proved difficult. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock, and I suffered pains. He says elsewhere, there was a leaf, a, a young tender beech leaf lying in the grass beside it, and I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let go of it at once. It was heavier to me than a sack of coal. And I'm saying that the truth here is not just a nice fantasy from a good author, but this is the great reality that Scripture heralds to us over and over again. We are people of the resurrection. We are people who worship the incarnate Christ. We are people who, when we see him, we will become like him because we will see him as he is. Paul's letters to the Corinthians are perhaps where he worked out this theme most articulately, I'll give you a few examples. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, listen carefully. For while we are still in this tent, it's a metaphor he's using for these bodies, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of weightiness of glory to another degree of glory. And as I already said glory in the Hebrew conception literally means weightiness. It's it's out with the Ikea and in with the restoration hardware, perhaps is one way to think of it. To which you are probably asking, that's perhaps encouraging and something I would do well to think on more, but what in the world does that have to do with the Abrahamic covenants? Which is the right question, the one I'd be asking, and, and the answer is this. We saw last week that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and we saw in Galatians 3.8, that the scriptures 
preached the gospel to Abraham and that we as Christians are children of Abraham, as it were, i.e. of the covenant, which means the promises that the Lord proclaims here, while certainly written initially to Israel as they were headed towards the promised land, and of course had a sort of fulfillment in the life of Israel, all of that was actually a foreshadowing. And Genesis 17 was also written for us on the other side of the incarnation to fill us with hope and with expectation on what Jesus Christ is accomplishing and will finally accomplish. This text is meant to fill us with a joyful expectation of redemption fully realized. And that's what I want to spend some time doing today. I want to spend time meditating on these covenant promises through an eschatological lens. So that's a fancy word. Eschatology just means ultimate things, the study of final things. What does Scripture say these promises will look like in their final form. And here's something remarkable, uh, remarkable before we look at the first promise. This is not just me having a novel take on Genesis 17. Like, what's a different spin we can put on this? This is not what it is. This is actually me looking at these promises the way Abraham ultimately looked at these promises, according to Hebrews 11. Listen to this. This is remarkable. Hebrews 11, I'll read 9 and 10 and then 16. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because he has prepared for them that city. That is to say, Abraham said, I'm going to walk faithfully right now, trusting in God's promises, not just because I will see fruit of that in the immediate, but because I now understand where the entire story is finally headed in some degree. As we like to say, as Christians, we want to live with one eye on the plow and one eye on the horizon, like Abraham did. And so with that, let's, like Abraham, consider the, the everlasting, the, the heavenly implications of three of these covenant promises that God gives us. Number one, what does God promise? God promised exceeding fruitfulness for his covenant people. God promised exceeding fruitfulness for his covenant people. And and this promise is all throughout chapter 17. He actually says it in three different ways, kind of the same idea from three different angles. He he says in verse 2 that I will multiply you. In verse 4, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And then verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And if we remember back to chapter 12, when Abram was first called, the Lord said there 
that all the families of the world will be blessed through Abraham. So so God is putting quite a, a heavy highlighter on this point. And as we consider that in light of eternity, I want to make two broad points. So one zoomed way out and then one zoomed way in. The first thing this means is that the gospel of Jesus Christ will ultimately be a massive success in the world. With salvation stretching out over all the earth and including people from every single tribe in the world. And and this is exactly the remarkable vision that John was given in Revelation as he was given a glimpse of the Abrahamic promise, realized. This is Revelation 7-9. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. I saw so many that I couldn't even begin to number them, kind of like sand on the shore, which is a picture that God gave to Abraham of what this would look like. So I wonder, do you believe that the number of the saved will far exceed the number of the damned? Have you thought of that before? I would argue, I believe we definitely should, especially in light of Genesis 17. Because there's simply no way you can hear the soaring promises of the Lord to Abraham, exceedingly fruitful, all the families blessed through you, and then think, yeah, the Lord definitely wanted him to expect vast minority. That's not where that picture heads. Now, I imagine that's a new thought for some, To borrow a metaphor I've heard elsewhere, many Christians perhaps believe the end of the world will be like the end of the Vietnam War, with just a a few saints getting airlifted at the last moment out and rescued, but all in all, the whole enterprise was actually a great failure. Now, some will point to where our Lord says, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many will find that, and narrow is the way to life, and only a few will find that as, well, Our Lord said that that's not what's going to happen, but we need to understand contextually there, he's speaking to people who are being taught by false prophets. That's what he says in the very next verse. Look out for false prophets. So he's not saying this is a final tally of redemption, tons of damned, just a few saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying look out for false prophets because the way is wide that goes to destruction, and that is what they're heralding. No, Christ will win. His great commission, which is grounded in the promise to Abraham, will be a success. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And King Jesus is not hand-wringing, seated next to the throne. He's reigning until he finally subdues all his enemies at the eschaton. And this is of practical import for us to understand because we live in very strange and insane days where it is very easy to get discouraged. It's easy to look around right now and feel like we're in the minority as Christians. And yes, 
These are dark and strange days. We are witnessing what it looks like when a country apostatizes. This is what that is happening right now. However, we must remember that we are a small moment in the vast span of church history. So 2,000 years thus far, well, 4,000 if you count the Old Testament. And even on a tall climb, there are always dips on the way up. And so that, I would argue, is the way we should understand these moments. This is a, a dark dip on the ultimate ascent. And let's also remember that it's only been 2,000 years since our Lord ascended, 50 generations, and here we are in Goodlessville, Tennessee, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that has gone so far over the world already. So the call for us in light of this promise is not discouragement or, or hunkering down. It is faith and faithfulness. The enemy wants us to believe the propaganda that Christianity is irrelevant, that society has progressed beyond that now, that there's no way that you can expect to raise faithful children in these days. But that's all, of course, absurd. Don't believe the propaganda. Don't believe your enemy. Believe your king who said that he will make his covenant people exceedingly fruitful and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the Lord will do it through his church. So that's the zoomed out point, which we should always keep before us to push back any temptation towards discouragement. The zoomed in point I want you to think on is this. Faithful, faith-filled Parenting and discipleship of children and teaching children is the primary way the Lord fulfills this promise of kingdom fruitfulness. So the, the kingdom of Christ expands in two ways. Through new converts, which we want. We want to tell the gospel to our unbelieving co-workers. That's one way. New converts and covenant children who are reared in the faith and who stay faithful. And we as a church are in a season where we have a lot of little ones. And this is a tremendous blessing. And it is also very tiring and requires great sacrifices. But as the saying goes, and this is so important to remember, the days are long, but the years are short. And so my encouragement is, is understand parents and teachers in particular especially when you feel discouraged or tired, your children will exist forever. Your children will exist forever. Your students will exist forever. And you are forming by the Spirit eternal souls right now. What you do today will matter for eternity. Think of this thought often. Think of the astonishing truth that one day, by grace, you will lock eyes with your children or students in the new heavens and new earth, and you will see the way the Lord used you to produce a glory that will last forever. That was his doing through you. So that's motivating, especially when it's hard. So stay after it. Go pray the prayers. Go sing the songs. Have consistent discipline by faith because it will matter.
forever. The saints will be exceedingly fruitful. The king will see to it. The next covenant promise the Lord makes to Abraham. Number two, he promises that his offspring, which again we already know includes Christians, he promises his offspring the land of Canaan or the promised land, or the land flowing with milk and honey, as it is often called in the scriptures. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So, of course... This had an immediate fulfillment in the book of Joshua as Israel won in and conquered Canaan and they subdued their enemies and they actually enjoyed a very rare season of rest and faithfulness for a bit. However, we also know that that fulfillment did not last as Israel ended up falling into syncretism and they broke covenant through idolatry. And so the brief rest in Canaan, the the fulfillment of that promise in Canaan, proved to be just a quick shadow fulfillment. And it was. It it was a shadow of the greater Joshua who was to come. That's what Yeshua means, Joshua. The greater Joshua who would destroy the true enemy and who would secure for his people the true promised land. And that wasn't just a 6,000 square mile parcel of land in the Middle East. But rather, the true Canaan is a redeemed cosmos. It is a new heavens and a new earth. This is the better country that Abraham himself eyed, according to Hebrews 11. Or it is, to borrow from Ephesians 1.14, the inheritance that awaits the saints. So here, two points again quickly. The first is one I've already made. Namely, we are headed towards a promised land. We are headed towards an embodied hope where we will enjoy a redeemed creation together forever. God is not a Gnostic, physical bad, spiritual, cloudy good. God is the creator of creation, and he is redeeming creation. This is so vital to have in your redemptive imagination. Who wants to go and play harps forever in a cloudy whatever? No, that's not where this story is headed. It is headed to, as it were, a restored creation, a garden become a city. My second point, more practical, is this. The promised land is not just something we are to sit around. The the, the promised land, so new heavens and new earth, is not just something we are to sit around and wait for. It's also something Christ empowers us to help usher in now. That's why we're here. We're, We're not just burning time until the Lord returns. That's not why he kept us here. Rather, how did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, how should we pray? Say things like that all the time. Think about bringing the life of heaven unto earth because that's what the body of Christ does. And this is why wherever Christianity has gone throughout the world over the last 2,000 years, everything has gotten better. 
The greatest arts, the greatest music, the greatest architecture, the greatest literature, the invention of hospitals and scientific advances was the result of Christians living for the glory of God in everything they did on purpose by faith. And the kingdom starts to bring up, spring up what it looks like when God reigns. That's what Christians show the world. This is what it looks like when God reigns a people. And it is a beautiful thing. That is to say, spirit-empowered, redeemed men and women become agents of holistic redemption. I'll say that again. Spirit-empowered, this just means to be a Christian, redeemed men and women become agents of holistic redemption. I'm not the only one in vocational ministry. The king has placed us all at our posts for a very important purpose in his redemptive purposes. Like a mustard seed overtaken the garden after time. So the work and the worship that we give ourselves to really matters. And what is done to the glory of God now will, in some mysterious but true way, it will survive forever. It will contribute to the glory of the life to come. That's the vision again from Revelation. All the kings of the nations bringing their peculiar glory into the new Jerusalem. And I get that language, again, because who cares what I think? What does the Bible say? I get that language from the apostle in 1 Corinthians 3. So listen carefully. 3, 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ survives he'll receive a reward. Notice that? If the work survives the day, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, as only through fire. Okay. So what we do matters. It's why we're here to usher in the life of heaven on earth by the power of the Spirit's. People may see our good works and give glory to our Father and get saved. Okay, so we're thinking about the covenant promises God made to Abraham in light of their eternal eschatological fulfillment. He promised exceeding fruitfulness that the company of the redeemed would be so vast you couldn't even begin to number it. God has promised us the land of, of, of Canaan, the, the promised land, as it were. That is, we're headed to a real, physical, glorious, redeemed creation. And finally, number three, God has promised to be our God forever. He has promised to be not just God, but our God forever. Verse eight, again, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And this, beloved, is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were a dwarf, this would be the Arkenstone. 
that makes all the other treasures seem small in comparison to this. And this is what the Lord places as the blazing center of his covenant promise and repeats over and over again throughout the prophets. Namely, through the gospel, we get God again. Through the gospel, we get God again. And not in some vague, deistic, pantheistic way. No, the living, personal, relational God that created the cosmos, that created you in his image and placed you in it. The fountain from which all love and all joy and all peace and all purpose flows. This God that you and I have rebelled against, this God that would have been totally justified in turning his back on us forever, this God is our God again through the covenant. Through our union with Christ, we are adopted back into the family of God. And instead of receiving his wrath, we are now receivers of his pleasure and his blessing. And instead of living in fear and uncertainty, trying to scrounge together an identity, we are given a new identity from him. Namely, beloved and redeemed and co-inheritors with Christ. And instead of being banished from his presence for eternity, we have now been welcomed with open arms into his kingdom forever. And instead of knowing him only as the righteous judge, we now get the privilege of calling him our God and our Father again. This is the beating heart of the covenant. This is the glory and the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is, do you know it to be true? And I'm not just saying, are you not a Christian who should become a Christian, which if you're not a Christian, you should become a Christian. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I'm saying it to Christians as well. Do you know that this is true? Do you dwell on this? Lord, teach us to pray. Say, our Father, who art in heaven. Do you find deep and abiding strength from this? To say it another way, is this the best part of the good news for you? Because it is. J.I. Packer, of course, says it well, in knowing God. You'll have this quote, I believe, in the liturgy at the front. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, well, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's my Packer quote. Here's what's true. The enemy does not want you to know that. He does not want you to believe that at a deep level, God is now your father. He does not want you to cherish the center of the covenant promise. And here's why. The enemy knows a Christian who truly knows and believes, first, that God is God. Second, that God is now their father. 
Well, that's a potent force for the kingdom. Because if the Almighty is your Father and is now purposed to leverage all of his redemptive energy only for your good and his glory, well, that's about as good as it gets. This is a person whose joy and faith, even amidst suffering, is always growing bigger because they know that the one who is in control over every square inch of their life is also working at all, the good and the hard, and often especially the hard, for their ultimate joy, because he's a good father. And even more, since we live in light of eternity, we know it's all being used by him to prepare us, to make us weightier, so that we feel more at home in the high country when we get there. That's what sanctification is. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul connects these two glorious ideas together that are true for us in the gospel, namely the glory of now being children of God and the promise that he is graciously preparing us for the glory to come. And this text is amazing because Paul envisions the rest of creation who hasn't sinned waiting with bated breath watching to see the beauty of the redemption that Christ reveals when the sons and daughters are revealed. I'll give the apostle the final word here. Romans 8, 15 through 19. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we now cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs, inheritors of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified, weightier with him. For I consider, still the apostle, I consider that the, the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Our Lord and our God.